Welcome to Q&A number seven. I have a ton of questions. I had about 300 questions on my Instagram. I picked out some of the, my favorites and I have about, I have my timer set for an hour. I'm going to answer as many of these questions as I can in that hour. I hope to get to all of them. Uh, before I start, I just want to make a quick announcement or a note. Uh, I have left cage muscle for those of you who knew I was with cage muscle. Um, and just to answer any questions kind of off the hop, I don't think there's anything wrong with their products. They're pure products. Me and management have a little bit different, differing opinion about uh, what bodybuilders want, but that's besides the point. Uh, I just wanted to leave because I've wanted to start my own brand for about four years now, and I haven't been able to, and now it's kind of reached the point where I can. So you guys are the first to know. We are, I am in the process with my team who I'll announce later in the process of starting my own brand. And just like the other bodybuilders that are out there now that are doing it right, like uh, Jeff Long and Seth Ferrosi and Jason Ha and these people that are out there and they're putting out the, the good products. I want to get in line with those people because there's a lot of companies that are not putting out great products not necessarily in a purity sense, but either they're not putting the right ingredients or they're not putting the right uh, dosing. And I'm talking about bodybuilders and serious lifters. If you're not a bodybuilder or serious lifter, this probably doesn't apply to you. Uh, you may like whatever product you're using, and I'm not trying to bash anybody else, but I feel like for myself, I want something a little bit. I just want to put together my own formula that I like that works for me. And uh, it's going to be dosed properly. It's going to be quality ingredients. And uh, that's, I think, the biggest problem with the industry is people are not really looking at dosing with that go with the claims. It's very easy to say I have citrulline in my product. It's very easy to say I have uh, whatever your favorite ingredient is in the product, Okay. But if you look up a claim, if you look up a, a study and say, okay, well, you have to use citrulline at X amount to get the benefit, but this company is only using a fraction of that amount, this is what I feel like is happening all the time. And it's a, it's a, it's a way for them to keep their costs down and make more money. And I don't feel like it's right. And I feel like if you're going to use a, an ingredient, you should have it at the dose required to get what you need. You know what I mean? Like if you're going to put citrulline and the studies say that six, the majority of studies or the reputable studies say that six grams of citrulline is what you need to get a good pump. But your company's product is only using one or two grams. Then there's a problem. And I feel like that happens a lot. Uh, the problem is the consumer doesn't go out and research the studies and they shouldn't have to. Um, but I'm going to make it my mission with our products that when we put our products out, if we make a claim about a product that it does something, we're going to have the proper ingredient dose to back that up because we're not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. We're not trying to fool anybody. I'm not in this. I'm not a numbers guy. Okay. I'm not a businessman. I'm a bodybuilder and businessmen are out to make profits. Bodybuilders are out to get big and my aim is to help you guys get the best workout you can because whatever I'll guarantee you this, whatever product I put out, I'm going to want to use myself. 
I'm not going to put out a product that I won't use. And I'm not going to put out a product that I don't believe in. So you guys know me. I'm not, I don't bullshit. Everything I do is real. The labels are going to be transparent. We're not going to do proprietary blends. We're not going to do any of that bullshit. It is what you see is what you get. And uh, we're going to tell you why it works and how it works. And uh, I hope that you guys will, will come along with me for the ride. Cause we're going to kind of show you guys uh, how it works, how we're starting, what the beginnings of it all is. And we'll, you know, take you to the manufacturing plant. We'll show you how it's made kind of the whole thing as transparent as possible, because I don't want you guys to feel like, Oh, this is just another fucking supplement company and food. trying to get rich. Not the case. I just, I want to put something out on the market that may not be there already. And it's something that I believe in, uh, that I can say, yeah, this is, has my name on it. This is what I use. This is what I like. And we're doing it. We, we are a bodybuilding company made for bodybuilders or made for serious lifters and people that just want to get the most out of their workouts. So anyway, I'm not going to go on about it too much longer. I'm excited about it. I, uh, I hope you guys are excited about it. You guys, like I said, are the first to know, uh, because you guys are on my follower. You guys are my followers, supporters on YouTube. You're my subscribers, my followers on Instagram, whatever. So I just wanted you guys kind of know to know first. And, um, yeah, I'm excited for it. It's going to be coming out soon. Hopefully before the new year, you guys will see things kind of really start to come together. So check that out. But anyway, let's get to the important stuff, the questions that I've taken down. So we'll start with the first one is Howie K. What to look for in a coach? No one to cut them loose. What are the price ranges? So price ranges, I'm going to say, are vary from coach to coach. If you go to a really high end coach, you might be paying like three fifty, four hundred dollars a month for the off season. You might be paying two to three grand for contest prep. If you go to like an average coach, you're probably going to be paying closer to two fifty, uh, two hundred, two hundred to three hundred for an average coach, maybe fifteen hundred to two grand for a prep. If you go to a lower end coach, or maybe it doesn't necessarily mean they're they're not as good, but if you go to somebody who's not maybe trying to make as much profit or they're just starting out, uh, they're probably going to go obviously less than 1500 for a prep and less than $200 a month for uh, an off season. Um, as far as what to look for personally, when I'm looking for a coach, I want somebody I trust. I want somebody who has done what I've done. doesn't mean they have to be a pro, but, Somebody who actually lifts and try and has tried to be a bodybuilder in some sort of way. Somebody who has credibility among, among their peers and has a client list that has kind of shown their record in some way. Like if they trained one person, I'm probably not going to go there, but if they trained 50 and you know, 10 of them have won shows, that's pretty good. Or like maybe not even the placings, but if the, if the scope of their clients are all pretty in pretty good shape and all that, then I'm going to trust them. Um, and then contact. I want to know that they're going to get back to me. Um, if your coach is taking four five, six, seven days to get back to you, I would worry if your coach is getting back to you same day, then you're great. Next day, you're great. Those kind of things. Those are the kind of things I look for. Now, when you're talking about cutting them loose, depends. If I'm in the off season with a coach and I'm not hearing back from them at all, when I send them my updates, 
then I'm going to cut them loose. You know, if it's taking them a week to get back to me, I'm going to cut them loose. I know the offseason is not important, but if your job is to coach, your job is to get back to me. Um, now, if you've made an agreement with the person ahead of time that they don't have to get back to you at any specific time, that's different. Uh, pre-contest, depending on how the prep goes will depend on whether I let them go or not. I, usually if I start a contest prep with somebody, I finish it with them. But if like the eight week mark rolls around and they haven't been getting back to me and I don't like the way I look and nothing's happening and they don't really give a shit, I might drop them halfway through. It's never happened to me, but let's assume your coach is good at getting back to you and you get all the way to the show and you just don't look the way you want to look. You have to ask yourself, is that my fault or is that his strategy? Did I cheat? Did I do everything he said? If you did everything he said and you still didn't look good, you might want to either give him one more show if you really believe in him or you cut your losses. If like, it's a, it's a hard question to answer because there's so many different variables in picking a coach, letting go of a coach, uh, all these things, like there's so many different variables. So when you let go of a coach, for me, the main thing, the main reasons you'd let go of a coach is not responsive, not sure of themselves and not getting the desired outcome you need. Those are the three main reasons I would give, I would let somebody go, but you have to answer those questions. Honestly, if there's things are your fault and you don't look good and you're just trying to blame your coach, then, you know, you're kind of an ass, but if you've done everything the person said and you've done it a hundred percent and you haven't really messed around and, and he, you're not checking all these boxes, then yeah, it's time for a new coach. I am route 96 says thoughts on splitting legs into two days, one for quads, one for hams. I just had this discussion with a friend of mine. So I don't believe that you can train legs properly twice a week. So like, I mean, quads, like you can't, you can't do a heavy quad day twice a week because I shouldn't say, I don't believe you. I, I believe you can't. I, I think for most people, it's going to be very difficult. There are some people genetically who can recover faster and maybe get back to it. And that's fine. For most people, if you're training hard enough, your legs may still be sore or not fully recovered by the second workout. Like if you do like a Monday, Thursday, right? So what I've learned to do is my Monday workout is a quad dominant leg day, meaning like four quad exercises, one hamstring exercise. Now your quad, your hamstrings are going to get going to get a lot of work when you're training quads anyway. So that's why I say it's a quad dominant, but you're still getting hamstrings because for example, if you're squatting, your hands are doing a lot of the work on the way down. Leg pressing, your hamstrings are get a lot of work. Like your hamstrings are working with your quads on compound movements. But I'll throw in one isolation at the end, like a lying leg curl or something like that. The second day will be a hamstring dominant leg workout. So it'll be like three or four hamstring exercises, one or two quad exercises. Now, the reason that's different is because most hamstring exercises don't involve the quads. Like if you're stiff, like deadlifting, your quads aren't really doing anything because your knees are almost locked. If you're doing a lying leg curl, your quads aren't doing anything. If you're doing a seated leg curl, your quads aren't doing anything. So you have to maybe do two quad exercises on the hamstring day. But even when I do those two quad exercises, they're not usually to all out failure. And one of them is usually a uh, isolation movement. So I'll do like a Let's say, for example, I do three hamstring exercises. I'll do 
leg extensions, and then I'll do like a wide stance Smith machine box squat. And those will be my quad exercises, right? So, and then even on that wide stance squat, you're still getting adductors, adductor work and more hamstring work too. So that's kind of how I set up my leg days when I want to do them twice a week, which is, I've been doing that for years. I don't feel like it's beneficial to go squat Monday and then come back squat fucking Thursday. Cause you're also, don't forget, you're going to do your back day on um, back day. You may be deadlifting and it's just a lot on your central nervous system. And I don't feel like if you're training a hundred percent, you can recover through all of that damage. Unless, like I said, you're a freak or you're genetically gifted or you're on some special protocol. I don't know about, but most people can do it for a little while, but they start to burn out. Dio Gollops CB says, what's the worst fuck up that you didn't did in peak week? Can you elaborate on the whole protocol and what you did wrong? So it has nothing to do with drugs. So I'm not sure if you meant protocol, like if you meant like my stack, I've never, well, that's not true. I tried to insulin load once and, um, well, it wasn't me. My coach at the time will remain unnamed, uh, wanted to insulin load. And I, I personally don't like insulin, but I was like, okay, if that's what you think is best, then we'll try it out. So we insulin loaded, meaning we, we took insulin with like, I think it was two or three meals a day starting uh, the Wednesday and then again on the Thursday and then again on the Friday. And when the show came around, this, it's so crazy. This is how, this is how much I dislike insulin. So I felt big as a house, the carbs loaded, everything was good. Muscle super, super full. I'm like, okay, you know, I didn't want to do this, but I think it's working out. I pumped up and then we go up for the very first round and I'm massive. Like everything's blown right out. Everything's like, looks really good. My stomach's really, really tight. And I crushed the first round. It's all just like the individual posing, whatever. And then you go off. I felt great. When you go now back then they did, they would call you out, uh, out in alphabetical order. So I was first, my last name being Abiad, right? So, I was the first guy out. It was 26 guys. So I have to wait for 26 guys to go through and do their individual posing round while I'm in the back trying to stay warm. Now, I don't know what happened. I don't know if I spilled over. I don't know if I went hypo. I can't tell you the, the scientific like thing that happened. But when I went back out for the second round, I looked like I hadn't even died. It's like my whole body smoothed over and I could not feel my muscles. Like I would flex, like I would flex as hard as I could. Just nothing happening. Nothing in my biceps, nothing in my chest. I'm like, I went through the second round. I got off stage. I felt absolutely horrible. I'm like, I don't know. Did I like, it looks like I didn't even die at all of a sudden. I suspect I spilled over. I suspect, I don't know the mechanism and how that works. I can't explain it to you, but um, I went from, being shredded full and hard to like each guy gets a minute on stage. So you think 25 minutes to 25 minutes later, looking like I was four weeks out. So that's probably the worst thing that's ever happened to me. 
um, in a prep because I was ready. It wasn't even like I got there and I wasn't ready. I've had those happen, but this was like, I was ready, shredded glutes, the whole bit. And then you couldn't tell. So I tell, I'll tell people all the time when you want to get ready for a show, the last, the peak week thing, we don't even call it peak week anymore between me and John. It's just the week. We increase the carbs a little bit. We'll drop the water a little bit. That's about it. We're not like doing shitty cheap meals. We're not doing insulin. We're not doing all this crap. We're not all over the place. It's very, very safe. Okay. We, want, we always try and get ready early. So we're ready like two or three weeks out. So when it comes time to load the last week, we're not trying to pull any miracles. We're just trying to fill the muscle out a little bit. Magnus Fanar says, what's your top 10 Olympia prediction? Um, I'm going to say Brandon Curry first, William Bonac second, Rolly Winkler third, Dexter Jackson fourth. I don't think this is, by the way, I think Hottie's doing 212, which is my, my guess. Uh, Luke is going to be fifth. I think Nathan... I may be forgetting people. I don't know. I think Nathan will be sixth. No, let's say Juan Morrell. Juan Morrell will be sixth. Nathan will be seventh. I could see Kuklo beating Nathan too. Kuklo could be seventh or sixth. It gets dicey. It gets dicey. I mean, it's going to be, listen, I'll say this. It's going to be an amazing Olympia, right? Because Kuklo could beat. If Luke is off a little bit, Kuklo could beat Luke. He could jump from what most people may think seventh or eighth. He could jump to fifth, right? So this is assuming everybody's 100%. I would probably put Kuklo ahead of Nathan also. Um, that would leave Nathan in like eighth place. And then John in ninth, John De La Rosa in ninth. Yeah, I'm not I'm not even sure of 10th place. I'm not even sure who else is qualified. And who I'm leaving out. I must be forgetting somebody. Um anyway, the point of the point of the answer, I you know, I try to come as close as I could. It gets a little dicey in there once you get past 5th. But it's going to be an amazing Olympia. A lot of these guys can trade places. Like that even that top 4. Like if Dexter comes in 100% I don't know. You could even put Dexter in first. Like it's really tough. It's really, really tough to, to judge this one. Whoever, whoever thinks they have it all figured out is, you know, it's great that they have a committed guest, but I, I don't think anybody has this one figured out because it's really going to depend who brings their very best. Cause they're all so close. Um, Ben Thomas says, tell us all, how no caffeine has been going. Is it even possible? So for those of you who don't know, my blood pressure was a little higher than I'd like. And my kidney levels were a little higher than I'd like. So instead of being a stubborn asshole, like a lot of bodybuilders and ignoring the situation, I messaged Dante Trudell for help and my coach John Meadows for help. And they both gave me some really, really great input. But one of the things I had to do to correct the kidney level issue and correct the blood pressure issue is to drop the caffeine. Now, those of you who don't know me, I take a lot of caffeine. Okay. Most of it is in the morning before cardio. I'll 
like take a caffeine tab and I drink a coffee and then I go to the gym and that, you know, that's like, if you do a caffeine tab and a coffee, that's 300 grams, 300 milligrams of caffeine, which is not the end of the world. But then a few hours later, I go to the gym and I take another 300 milligrams of caffeine. So you start stacking it all together for long, long periods of time, taking 600, 700 milligrams of caffeine every day for years on end is going to take its toll on your body. Uh, your adrenal glands, caffeine affects your kidneys, caffeine affects your blood pressure, your heart rate, everything. So, and I'm not saying it's a solution to everything, but one of the things we did was drop the caffeine and it was, I didn't go through withdrawals like headaches and all that shit, but the first few workouts really sucked because I would get to the gym and normally when I get to the gym, I would be ready and primed and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm amped up. When they, when I pulled the caffeine, it was like almost, it took one exercise. Like I do the first exercise or at least the first few warm up sets and then a couple working sets before I would start to come alive. And then I was fine after that. So I kind of started to be okay. So after the first few workouts, I'm like, I think I'm okay without caffeine. And now it's been three weeks, I think. I think it's been three weeks with no caffeine. Uh, I think there was a couple days where I had it only because I was on like a really long drive one day. And then uh, there was another day for another, just a different circumstance. But other than that, it's been about three weeks with no caffeine and I felt fine. I'm sleeping better. Uh, my mood is better. I'm not like up and down tired during the day. It, it's really been a, a good thing for me. And I really would advise anybody who takes a lot of caffeine. I know it's really difficult to imagine, but even if you just go off for a week or two just to kind of reset your body. Cause when you start like that day that I had caffeine on the drive I was on with my wife, I wouldn't shut up. I was like wide awake and caffeine never does that to me, but just going off it for one or two weeks and then having a coffee, I was lit right up. Like she couldn't shut me up. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't stop talking. I'm just like, I'm, I'm going crazy right now. And it was just from one coffee. So, yeah, if you're one of these people that takes a ton of caffeine, I personally, as hard as it sounds, would definitely take, you know, a couple weeks off here and there and let your body reset itself. Lunchbox89 says, why sometimes do I feel nauseous trying to eat an hour after my workouts? It's not all the time, mainly on leg days and pull days. All the blood is in your back or legs. Your back and legs is two biggest body parts. And you get a rush of blood to your legs when you're training legs and lactic acid and all these things, it makes you not want, it makes you nauseous is what it does. Um, I'm sure there's a better scientific explanation, but it doesn't matter. Look, what you're going through is what we all go through. You train a big body part. It makes you nauseous. It takes every, all the effort in the world. And when you're done, uh, you don't want, I don't want to eat either, but that's the important see. Some people think an intra workout is only important if you're going to train for like three or four hours. And this is where my opinion differs. I don't always like to eat the minute I'm done training. Like, you know, they say like, you know, the anabolic window and it's good to like hurry up and get some nutrients in you before you, and I agree with that stuff. But if I take an intro workout that has some carbs and some aminos in it, then I don't feel like I have to jump to get a, a shake in or a meal in. I can wait half an hour, 40 minutes, and I've already had some aminos and some carbs during my workout. So it's not like I've been starving this whole time. So 
my advice to you is if you can find a good intro workout, I would start drinking an intro workout during your training. And then that will afford you the time after you're done to kind of let your body rest. And then half an hour, 40 minutes after you're done training, you can get in a whole food meal or just slam a shake. I mean, look, if you're really, really interested in growing and you really want to force yourself as nauseous as you are, you can always drink a shake. So, you know, find a high quality protein and a high quality carb powder and some uh, essential aminos, maybe mix them together and just drink it, just drink it quick after your workout. And that's that way you, it'll, it'll give you an hour or an hour and a half before you have to eat any real food. So there's two ways you can go about it. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce this because there's no vowels. It's just inst- instis. In your opinion, in an off-season cycle, how long can you milk a certain dosage of testosterone? For example, being on 400 milligrams on your blast and 150 milligrams on your cruise. How will you know or there or are there any telltale signs it's time for you to increase your dosage? Um, I think if you do a cycle and you don't get any results out of it, I'm, I'm trying to say this without prescribing anything. All I can, all I can tell you is this. If I personally do a cycle and I get no benefit from it and I know my eating was good and my training was good and my sleep was good. If that happens two cycles in a row, I know something's wrong. I know either my dose isn't high enough or I need a different compound. So in your case, like using the 400 number, I want to use that 400 number as long as possible. So let's say you do a 12 week cycle for at 400 and you make gains by the end of the 12 weeks, you're like, okay, I put on X amount of weight. I, I, my strength went up this much. And then you go off and you come back on for a next cycle and you're not gaining any weight. You're like, okay, my eating is good. My training is good, but I'm not gaining any weight. I don't feel strong. I don't, for me, my measurement is usually strength. If I'm, if, if PDs are affecting me the, the, sh- the way they should be, I usually get much stronger than I normally am. Not saying I'm stronger than everybody in the gym or stronger than everybody on Instagram or any of that shit. I'm just saying I get stronger than I normally am without it. If I don't notice those strength increases, then they're significant. If I don't notice them, then something's not right. So I'll, I have to change uh, compounds. So, for example, I was trying out some T-ball, like Tarana ball. I didn't get any strength gains from it. I've never used it since. I just don't get the boost from it that I want. And usually for me, it's strength because it's easy to put on weight. It's weight is not always a good indicator because you could take salt tabs and gain a bunch of water weight and think, Oh great. I put on 10 pounds of fucking water and I look like shit. Strength is not, you can't cheat that. Like if someone says take Anadrol and you take Anadrol and you don't get stronger, this has actually happened to me and you don't get stronger and you just get fucking watery, then it's shit Anadrol. And that was one of the last times I used Anadrol as well, because I can't, I'm not going to put something in my body. That's first of all, that toxic because Anadrol is a toxic compound. Um, if it's supposed to make me strong, it's not making me strong. 
I don't want the water weight. That's a side effect of it. I don't mind it. Water gives you, you know, water weight helps you with strength sometimes, but I want the strength effect when I'm on gear. And if I don't get the strength effect, it's, I'm going to move on to the next thing. So in, to answer your question, if you're dosing at 400, well, let me say this. If I'm dosing at 400 and I'm not getting any benefit strength wise from the previous cycle I was on, I'm probably going to go to five and see how I feel on five and see if my strength goes up at five and see how everything goes that way. Uh, Kesbra says, who's your money on this weekend? Khabib or Dustin? Really? Come on, man. It's Khabib time. It's that simple. <laughs> it's not. Khabib is the man, man. He's what, 27, 28 and 0. And uh, I just don't think Dustin can stop him. Dustin's not. Dustin's beaten a bunch of strikers. I don't think he's beaten any wrestlers recently. And uh, I think he's in for a long night, man. Unless he catches Khabib on the way in. But I mean, Connor couldn't do it. So I don't know. Dustin's got good boxing, but I just don't see him beating Khabib. So my money's on Khabib. Uh, CM, C. Marin. How much does genetics play a role in terms of size alone? Obviously, it has a massive role in structure and flow. But can anyone get to, say, 250 pounds plus as long as they are on point with their training food and supplements? It's not an absolute answer. I, I can't tell you, but I would say that I would say that genetics plays a part in size too, because I know some guys who eat like I do and train like I do, and they take the proper supplements and everything, and they just can't put on a they can't put on a weight. Like I know some guys are eating like, and I know they do. I know they're not lying. They're eating like five six thousand calories a day, and they just can't get over two ten. I trained one guy who literally I had him on 5,500 calories a day and I know he was eating it. He was shredded all year round. And he couldn't put on any weight. He was like 205. Couldn't just couldn't put on any weight. So I do think there's a genetic component to size as well as structure, as well as insertion points and all that. So I don't think everybody can be uh, 280 pounds, 300 pounds, whatever. And I also think it's genetic because even if you could, some guys get there really, really easily. Like look at Antoine. Antoine took a, like a five-year hiatus from bodybuilding, came back at like 230 pounds. And like a year later, he's 300 pounds. Like that's incredible. So it's definitely, there's definitely a genetic component to size as well as structure and uh, flow that you would call it, which is like insertion points and all that. Ironclad ingredients says, sorry, man, I can't type. What's the best advice for eating around gym time? The training is at 5 a.m. Given the most impossible, given that it's the most impossible to have any food before, even a banana would bloat me. <sighs> I don't know the answer to that, man. I'm sorry. Like, I picked this question because it's a tough one, uh, not because I had the answer. You have to eat something. You can't. I mean, look, I don't, I don't think it's like, I'm not saying you ha you can't train fasted and you'll never grow, but if we're talking about optimal gains, you got to eat something. So I feel like you have to train 
with something in your system. And if a banana bloats you, then you have more problems than, than bodybuilding. Like a banana shouldn't bloat you. And if a banana is bloating you, it could be the sugars in it that don't eat a banana. Eat, just have a shake. Have, if I had to, if I had to, I'd probably have a keto diet because it wouldn't bloat me as much. So if I was you in your shoes, I would probably have like a couple scoops of protein powder with a tablespoon of peanut butter. Uh, I know people think the peanut butter will blow, but it's such a small amount, such a small meal that it wouldn't blow me. Now, if any form of fat bloats you, then you're going to have uh, a couple scoops of protein powder, even one scoop of protein powder and a small bowl of oatmeal, like just a quarter cup. You just have to have something. I don't think it's, I'm not saying you have to have a huge meal, but you have to have something. And if a banana is bloating you like a, such a small thing, then uh, there's an, you have to wake up half an hour earlier. Like you can't, you can't eat really anything on the way to the gym and then expect it to be digested. You have to give yourself a little bit of time. So, you know, I, I have friends who uh, train at 6am. They're up at four 30 and they get real meals in They get like uh, one of my clients. He gets uh, two eggs, eight egg whites and a third, a cup of uh, cream of rice. He wakes up half an hour earlier, gets that in, and he gets to the gym like 5.30 or something, 6.30, 6 in the morning, something like that. So you have to try and try different foods that don't bloat you, number one, and you have to get up earlier. That's the only solution. Thomas X-Frame Army says, after watching pro bodybuilders and looking at their diets, I noticed I haven't seen high-level competitors that use protein bars in their meals. Do you think protein bars have a place in competitive bodybuilding or is it more of just casual fitness and recreational gym goers? Uh, the reason is most bodybuilders know that protein bars are full of fillers. Um, they're low in protein. They're just not a good choice. Now, if you're like, Oh, I'm in the desert and there's nothing to eat but protein bars, then yeah, have a protein bar. But most serious bodybuilders or people serious about their, their muscular gains are going to have a protein shake before they have a protein bar. You know what I mean? Because some people say, well, it's easy. I can just grab it on the way. Well, it's not hard to make a protein shake. You put some powder in a shaker cup and you buy a bottle of water somewhere and you shake it up and that's it. So it's not, I mean, I used to do protein powder with oatmeal. I just put the oatmeal and the protein powder in a shaker cup. And then I would just fill it with water and drink and then just kind of eat the oatmeal while I was drinking it. And the oatmeal was still raw. So I don't feel like there are good, there are good protein bars on the market and it's not their fault. Like to make a real protein bar, that's really good. It's something that has to be refrigerated. Now, if you find a refrigerated protein bar, that's a different story. Cause now you're talking about, they probably made it with real ingredients and whole food. The problem with, um, the store bought like shelf shelf life, regular protein bars they're made with a lot of preservatives and a lot of different ingredients that keep them okay while they're sitting on a shelf for who knows how long. And the protein amounts are very, very minimal. They're like 15 grams, 20 grams, just not, you know, that means I got to eat three of them to get my protein count. Like if I'm trying to get 50 or 60 grams of protein in a meal, that means I got to eat three protein bars or two protein bars at least. And I'm getting all that sorbitol and all that different sugar alcohols and different, it's just not, not a good choice, man. There are way better choices and way better ways to, to get your protein in. 
Tyson Sil- Silby says, and my question is when started out and bought when, sorry guys, when starting out in bodybuilding, how did you know what you, when Jesus Christ, I can't cut, uh, when starting out in bodybuilding, how did you know that you had it? Was it love and hard work for the sport or did genetics play a big role in knowing you could make it? Um, it wasn't genetics. Like I didn't know I could make it. When I started, I started for fun and I did my first show and I won and I was like, Hey, maybe I'm not bad at this. And I kind of thought, I think I want to do another one. And I did another one and I won again. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to try this again. And then when I took third at my third show and it qualified me for nationals, I was like, okay, I think I want to keep doing this. Uh, I know I didn't win the last show I was at, but I'm still really young. And those guys were a lot older than me. I was only 21. I think at that show. And uh, I was like, I want to keep trying because I think I'm good at this. And other people around me were telling me it was more, it was more other people around me that I trusted were telling me that I had something uh, that I didn't realize I had. So I thought I'm going to, I'm going to make this happen. Cause it, it made me happy. Right. I'm like, it wasn't just because people were telling me I was pretty good at it. It was because it made me happy. I was like, I liked, I love training and I kind of like getting on stage. So I was like, okay, I think I can, I think I can make this into something that uh, goes further than just a hobby, but it wasn't genetics. It was just, trial and error, like actually getting on stage and, and winning and seeing that I had something valuable that I could take with me. So that's what just winning the second show and doing the third show. And then I clicked. I'm like, I want to keep doing this. 1987. Anthony says, love your podcast. Thank you. Do you think leg extensions are really needed for a thick quad sweep drop? Even when squats, front squats, Smith squats, hack squats, all already included very few days. Okay, so I get your question. Basically, you're saying are leg extensions useless or they they serve a purpose? Um, I have two schools of thought on this. There was one year where Hani told me, I was working with Hani back in 2010, and he said, your legs are shit. You need to fix them. If you don't fix them, you're never going to win a show. I spent the entire year in 2011 just focused on my legs and I didn't do any leg extensions, any lunges. I didn't do shit. It was all only compound movements. It was like squats, leg press, hack squats, front squats every week. And it worked. It worked. My legs got nice and round. And, uh, I think 2011 was my biggest, the leg, like the, the year my legs were their biggest. And, uh, I don't want to say leg extensions don't have their place though, because I think they're very valuable for a lot of different reasons. One being they're good at pre-exhaust at the start of a workout. They're, they're really good to burn and finish out a workout. Um, do I think you need them to grow your legs? No, Uh, there's 15 other exercises you can do for legs to grow your legs. But do I think they're really great at etching in detail and, kind of carving out your quads so that when they're on stage, they really show. Yes. I think they're valuable that way. So I wouldn't dump them now, but you can go in phases. If you're like, look, I really don't care about the detail in my legs right now. I just want to put some mass on. Then don't waste time dicking around the leg extension, get your warm up, get everything done. 
and then get to work on your compound movements and just focus on that for a little while. And then you can be like, okay, this month or this block of time, I'm going to focus on getting more details. So you're going to add lunges in and leg extensions in and all that kind of stuff. So you can do that kind of program too. So you have to decide what's the most important thing for you. When I, when I decided mass was the most important thing, I turned my whole program on its head and I just focused on compound movements only. And then when I had the mass, I was like, okay, now I'm going to start etching in more detail with lunges and, and Bulgarian split squats and, and leg extension stuff and all that kind of shit. C.S. C.S. Dupuri. How would you manage a full-time exhausting work like construction for 12 hours per day with training, rest, sleep, and nutrition? I have to tell you, I uh, respect those guys more than anything and it's going to be tough no matter who you are because I did, I was a carpenter one summer in a plant, not like on a house or on a roof or anything. So it was even easier. And I think we worked 10 hour days. I would go right after work. So I would work, get up early, go to work. And then after work, I would go directly to the gym <sighs> excuse me guys. I had a long trip back yesterday. Um, I would go directly from work to the gym and I couldn't do it any other way because if I went home after work, I wasn't going to make it back to the gym. I was probably too, going to be too tired and I couldn't get up at that time. I used to sleep a lot. So I couldn't get up before work to go work out because it would have been way too early. So it was the only way I would just kind of pack my food I'd go to the, go to work. I'd work until like, I don't know, four or five o'clock. And then I would leave work and go directly to the gym. Probably take like hydroxy cut at the time or something, or some type of energy pill, uh, Xenadrine. I don't know. There was a bunch of different shit out back then, but, and then I would go train and that was kind of how I got through that whole summer, but it's not optimal. I was tired all the time. And, um, I'm definitely, I definitely know I wasn't recovering as fast as I should have been. I wasn't sleeping enough and, uh, it's not impossible, but it's not easy. I'll tell you that. Chris Tyler 93 says, this might be kind of a dumb question, but what's your least favorite body part to train and why, how do you get past the initial, Oh shit, it's such and such a day and turn it into a good training session. Um, Okay. Arm day is not my favorite day, but it's easy. So I get in there and it's no problem. Hamstrings and calves is not an exciting day, but when you say, how do you get past it? There's nothing really to get past. I want to build, let's assume I didn't compete. I still want to build all my muscles. So even if I didn't compete, I would still go in there and train hamstrings. Now, I might not be happy. Like I might not be thinking about it the day before going, Oh man, tomorrow's hamstring day. That's so great. Like I do like on quad day or back day or something like that. Right. But it doesn't matter. It's that's where the word discipline comes into play. Right. Like all these people that are out there saying motivation is fleeting and discipline is the real shit. Well, as cliche as it's become, it's true. Uh, there doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter that I want to go train hamstrings or not. If I want a complete physique, if I want a body that looks complete from head to toe and front to back, then I'm going to do my hamstring workout. I'm just going to go. And 
that's exactly what it is. When you say, well, how do you get past it? I don't, I'm like, this sucks. Sometimes I'm on my way to the gym and I'm like, fucking the hamstrings, right? That's okay. Great. It's boring. Nobody can see it. Nobody cares. Um, but I care. Like I want to make sure when I do that side chest or when I put my, turn my legs to the side and I look, it looks like I have hamstrings. So I just get there. And once I get started, I'm good. It's just, you have to force yourself to get there. I've never been at the gym and been in the middle of a hamstring workout and thought this sucks. I wish I could go home. It, that doesn't happen. It's just the initial getting there because it's not an exciting body part to train. But once I'm actually training, then I'm in heaven. I don't care. It doesn't matter. I could be training any body part. It's still the same level of intensity all the time. It's just how excited am I, am I when I'm driving to the gym? That's the only question. And, but regardless of whether I'm excited or not, I'm going to go. M Fisher 126 says, is it better to go to failure every set or only the last set or two of each exercise? I'll tell you this. I don't think it's a good idea to go to failure in every set. I used to do that. I think in uh, 2012 and 13, I spent a lot of time going to failure on every set and it destroyed my body, just destroyed my body. And um, when John Meadows took over my training in 2014, he gave me a training program and it's not to failure. There's only like one exercise, like one set, usually one or two, like the last, the second last exercise set on an exercise will be like 85 to 90% push. And then the last exercise or the last set of that exercise is 100% push. And uh, yeah, that my body immediately turned around, like immediately it got better because I wasn't just overdoing it all the time. So you can definitely overtrain. Going to failure on every set will definitely get you there in a hurry. Sheldon Rive, how many deals or contracts with companies have you had to turn down because their efforts were shit or not to your liking? Tons. Tons. When I left uh, Muscle Tech, or when Muscle Tech let me go because they were signing Phil Heath, so they let go of me and like 10 other guys. Um, I had to go find a contract and I looked around, I called people, had conversations with different athlete managers. Nobody wanted to offer me the money that I wanted. Nobody wanted to offer me the incentives or the whatever, like the contracts just weren't what I wanted. And eventually SciTech came along and I ended up signing with SciTech and we had a great run. And then on from there. And then after I left SciTech, I had a little bit of time where I looked around and I didn't get what I wanted. And it was the same thing. I just kept looking and kept looking until I finally did get what I wanted. So, um, it's going to happen. It's just part of it, right? Like everybody's going to value you differently. Some companies are going to value you at, you know, $150,000 a year. Some companies are going to value you at $25,000 a year. And every company is the same. They want to try and get you for as little as possible and try and maximize their profits. And, um, I don't blame them for that. I just wasn't going to sign anything that I thought was not representative of who I am. And I went through a lot of them. Like there was a lot of phone calls, a lot of like, thank you very much. I got to move on a lot of that going on or a lot of them telling me, Oh no, you're asking for too much. We can't do it. I say, okay, thank you for your time. And I'd move on to the next person. 
you have to know what you're worth, but you have to be realistic about what you're worth. I set my worth higher because I knew how much work I was going to put in outside of comp- outside of competing. I might not be winning every show, but I know I'm going to be posting a lot on social media and I'm going to be doing a lot of videos and I'm doing a lot of, and all those things are very valuable to, to a lot of companies. So I kept looking until I found a company that also found that valuable and I was willing and they were willing to pay me what I asked for. Santol Alejandro says, how would you tackle traveling vacation and nutrition? Say you have a trip coming up with your family, your significant other, you want to enjoy yourself a little in the off season, obviously. Um, if I'm traveling and I'm trying to stay on point, I bring a huge bag of oatmeal and a huge bag of protein powder. And if I can't find food, that's my go-to every time. Cause I can, I don't need a microwave for it. All I need is a little bit of water uh, and I can mix together my protein and oatmeal. So that I feel like is the best option or the e- sorry, the easiest option. The best option is, if you travel, try and get a hotel with a kitchenette. If you can get a hotel with a kitchenette, then you can just go to the grocery store and get whatever you want. And then you can cook it in your own room and have food. When you say enjoying yourself, I still enjoy myself. Like I'm not saying I'm dieting like, oh, I'm eating chicken and rice every day. I'll eat, you know, if me and my, if we're on vacation, you know, me and my wife are going to go to dinner somewhere. I'll eat whatever I want. You know, I'll still try and get a good portion of protein or whatever, but like, I'm going to eat whatever I want. I'm going to have dessert and all that shit. But what I'm trying to say is if you bring a bag of oatmeal and protein with you, you're probably going to have lunch somewhere. You're probably going to have dinner somewhere. The hotel you're staying at probably has breakfast. So that's three meals. So you need to cover at least two more. No problem. I have a shake and oatmeal meals. One is covered. So meal, meal two is uh, protein and oatmeal. Meal three is lunch. So meal four is protein and oatmeal. And meal five is dinner. And then if you want, you can do a sixth meal and just do protein and peanut butter. And you can just pack a jar of peanut butter with you. So that's the definitely the easiest way to do it. Nicholas Abro says, if you were to get back in time and choose a gen- if you could go back in time and choose a generation or era in which you would like to be born in. It doesn't have to be bodybuilding related. It can be, but it doesn't matter. Could you, could be middle medieval times. Could be the seventies. It could be now. What what generation? Um, when I think medieval, I think that's pretty awesome because that's the meathead in me thinking that like you just you could just like take whatever you wanted whenever you wanted it, but you also run the risk of getting your head cut off by like anybody and everybody. So probably not medieval. You know what? I really like the seventies. I like the sixties or seventies. I like the music in that era and I like the cars in that, in those eras. And, um, I always found the fashion interesting in those eras too. Yeah, I think, I think this, and plus, you know, I'm not, even though I like social media, I kind of like thinking about a time when like you still had a phone on the wall and it had to ring and you had to go pick it up and nobody could get a hold of you all the time and all that shit. Uh, so yeah, I think the sixties or seventies, I haven't, I can't decide which one, but that entire block there is probably, um, I find that era interesting. 